Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Kesslering. And on today's podcast, we welcome special guest, Will Marshall, CEO of Planet Labs. Planet Labs is a leading provider of daily data and insights about the Earth and is currently going public at a 2.25 billion dollar enterprise value. On the show, Will discusses his background at NASA and some important missions they accomplished, how Planet plans to become the Bloomberg terminal for Earth data, Planet's business model and competitive advantages in the marketplace, what made DMY Technology the right merger partner for Planet, and more. So with no further ado, Here's our show with Planet Lab CEO, Will Marshall. A point of disclosure, the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF does hold a position in the shares and warrants of Planet merger partner, DMY Technology Group 4. I'm very excited to have Will on the podcast today. And Mike, I think it may be the first time we have a literal rocket scientist on the show. So probably our smartest podcast guest ever. So Will, welcome to the show. I thought I'd kick things off by going through some of your pretty extensive background, noting that you were a former scientist at NASA. Do you want to talk about your early interest in science, physics, your path to NASA, and ultimately Planet Labs? Thanks very much, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and yeah, so I started as a space scientist, uh, I studied astrophysics and then quantum physics for my PhD, went uh, and ended up working at NASA Ames Research Center on a number of uh, missions, but mainly, mainly what was called small satellite technology. So we pioneered their small satellite technology on behalf of NASA. And we were we would we were doing a, a few missions. I was lucky enough to be involved with two lunar missions, a Laddie and Elcross. The, these were two two missions. One Elcross was looking for water in the south pole of the moon, and water had never been confirmed there before. And we actually literally hit down in the middle of what was more or less a, a load of a regolith with with icy particulates in it. So we we discovered. Uh, a boatload of water on the moon in the form of ice, um, and people hadn't discovered that before. Uh, pioneeringly, that was a low-cost mission from NASA's perspective, under well under $100 million, which <laughs> you, know, you may say, think of that as very expensive, but typical NASA missions are you know, of order a billion dollars. And so wow. um, it was considered low-cost. But then uh, we were trying to pioneer technology to, 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 to reduce costs and miniaturize satellites in particular. And what we were noting was, how Moore's law was transitioning technology as so fast with processors and radios and accelerometers and, and sensor systems, all getting smaller and smaller. And we were like, okay, how can we make smaller satellites do the same thing as the big ones? And we flew a few phones into space. We called them PhoneSat. And we had amateur radio listeners pointing their amateur radio antenna at these phones as they flew around the Earth uh, 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 in orbit. And and took little pictures with their camera phone. And they were like, wow, if this works, and it did, uh, we were like, well, maybe we could leverage consumer electronics to build satellites much, much more compact and more efficient. And that led us to this idea of, well, what could we do if we put lots of satellites where we could do 
something like much more frequent Earth imaging, and that's what led to the birth of Planet. Because what we realized was we could do a lot of lot of help for the for how we steward the Earth if we had a lot more rapid imaging. And I'll obviously talk more about that, but that's sort of the quick quick summary. So prior to getting into the founding of the company, I wanted to touch on one more thing at NASA. It seems to be like a dream that every kid has, either to go into space or, or work on rocket ships and stuff like that. What was the coolest experience that you drew from that? Well, I mean, we were very, very lucky to have a relative freedom to start missions relatively young in our scientific career. And um, I think that we were, this lunar mission, when we sent this probe and we actually uh, got the data back from the moon successfully and we discovered the water there that was uh, the highlight of my time there i mean that was a big deal for the scientific community it was on um, um we didn't think that there was water on the moon and it just turned out the prior 73 missions to the moon which many of which had looked for water they were just looking in the wrong place and we just discovered it in these craters in the south pole um where the sun is it, it never shines basically um, they're in craters and they're in permanent shadow and they've been in permanent shadow from the, the way we hit have been in shadow for 2 billion years and it was wow. 40 Kelvin in temperature. So it was really cold, minus 230 degrees C, really, really bloody cold. And uh, there we found all this water and other light hydrocarbons and all the things necessary to build uh, human settlements. Uh, so ultimately that resource uh, discovery was really cool. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution, providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy to use, one choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1CONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. You talked a little bit about from the technology side that the founding of your company became possible. So from from that perspective, um, from the technology aspect, seems like uh, there, there was a product that you were going to be able to launch. But can you talk a little bit about that decision to to leave NASA um, to to now go be an entrepreneur? That's that's a very difficult. Um, transition, even even if you're well capitalized, there's a certain amount of your identity wrapped up in in that. Can you talk a little bit about that? And and then as well, you know how how you plan on being the Bloomberg terminal for for the Earth Earth's data. That was something that really, um, from from a finance perspective, um, an investor's perspective, really jumped out to to both Julian and I. I'm sure. Well, I can't wait to talk about that. But just the, the quickly on that. Yeah, I mean, look, it wasn't hard for us as a team to decide we wanted to go there, Michael, and leave NASA to start Planet because the stars were aligned. We, what we realized was that, that it, what was possible in, in terms of putting up a lot more sensors, we had the necessary tools for, the society and the economy needed that data, and and we had, yeah, we were there ready to do it. And then we were in Silicon Valley already, so we, we could find access to the capital. We had friends that had already done this sort of thing, spun out. Some of them had gone to NASA, some of them had gone to Apple, some of them had done startups. But, you know, we knew that sort of show, 
And uh, so we went and found our first VC check. We didn't leave NASA with capital. We, uh, we, we found capital thereafter after we started building these satellites literally in our garage, which is, you know, what one is meant to do in Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we did, really did it. Clean the leaves out of the room. <laughs> the garage in the morning and then start building the satellite anyway but um in all seriousness it wasn't it wasn't though just because it was a cool technology it was because we realized that this data that we could gather could have tremendous applications to the earth economy so let me take us more terrestrial for a second and yes bloomberg terminal for earth data that's how we think of it because what we are doing is we have 200 satellites uh, uh, 180 of them image the whole Earth every day, all the land mass of the Earth uh, at about three, five meter resolution. So you can just about see a tree, you can see a house, you can see a road, you can't read a number plate or, or see or identify a person, but you can see the macroscopic object. We are seeing the entire Earth every day. So now we have 1500 images on every point on average on the Earth's surface documenting all the change and every day tracking new changes. And I'll get onto why that is super important to lots of economic factors in a second. Secondly, we have 21 satellites that can zoom in at 50 centimeter resolution up to 10 times per day. So this is the data set we have. But why is that interesting? Okay, so let me talk about just a few applications. Firstly, agriculture. So 25% of the land mass of the earth is agricultural land. And they are trying to do what's called digital agriculture or precision agriculture. This is where they're trying to improve crop yields um, in any given area of land. It turns out with our satellite images, it's not just a pretty picture of the field. We, with one of our spectral bands, can tell crop type and crop yield. So we can say this by three by three meter box, it's wheat and it's doing this well. We know the yield. In fact, we can predict the yield. We know when they're going to harvest. We know when they're going to sow. We can help them improve agricultural yield by telling them when to add fertilizer, when to add water, when there's blight in the field. This can improve crop yields by 20 to 40% in the developed world. I mean, and that is a big industry, and they need daily data to help this precision agricultural practice. I could give a number of other examples in that sort of what's called digital transformation space. Um, we're helping a lot of governments do that, like local and state government do law enforcement, like regulatory enforcement, you know, like speed cameras catch people and send them a ticket. Well, we're doing that, but for illegal swimming pools, you know, people have to have construction permits to do the swimming pool. Or, or in, in, in here in California, you have to have permits to do uh, weed growing. Even if you uh, can do it legally, you still have to have permits. And some of the counties have used it to enforce that they have that. And they just send them bills in the mail. It's a super efficient way of keeping on track of those regulatory enforcement. And then I'm not sure how I morally feel about that, you know. <laughs> no, okay. no, but, um, so there's a lot of government applications. We work with companies like Google that improve their maps online. So this is how the maps that you see online are staying up to date. When they do something really powerful, whenever they see something uh, change, like a new road or a new building or any hint of that, like if people are suddenly driving through the middle of a field because they see the cell phone signals through the middle of a field, they're like, hang on a second, maybe there's a road there. And then they automatically task on our high resolution satellites to take a picture of that place. And then that, and they automatically pick out the road or the building from that, and then they update the map. Okay, so this is how the maps stay up to date, otherwise they quickly go out of date. And so there's a, lot, a wide variety of use cases. And the general theme is twofold. One is digital transformation. This is where big data and AI are helping various industries improve their efficiency. The second is sustainability. So every company is trying to measure its ESG targets. Every country is trying to measure its 
emissions. And how do you do that? How do you do that in a uniform way? How do you do that without you know, uh, going into every house and checking everything? You do that with satellites. We have a base map of what everything's, again, if you're a company trying to measure, check that you're, we work with Georgia Pacific as an example, that's trying to tr ensure that their, the, the wood that they source for their paper comes from a sustainable forest. They know where that is, but they didn't know if it's sustainable. So they use our data to check that it's being sustainably managed. That's the kind of thing. So ESG supply chain tracking for the E in ESG, it's gonna be really huge for companies and you can't ma manage what you don't measure. Planet's data is the source of measuring all those things. And so as companies and governments get more into sustainability, we're sort of a, a cornerstone data set that enables them to make that transition. I really wanted to dig into that because it appears you're a mission-driven company. I see the words ESG and sustainability just throughout your investor presentation. Was that, you know, is that a key opportunity and, and a key mission for the company? Well, the two things I was just mentioning to you, sustainability transition, digital transformation, these are no minor economic opportunities. Right. These are multi-trillion dollar transitions of the global economy. I think that, so it's solidly both. It's solidly that we in started Planet with an intent to help bring about a sustainable economy. Right. And it's a massive business opportunity because uh, this, they need this data. You know, the economists quipped, data's the new oil. Well, uh, there's some problems with that analogy, some good things about that analogy, but certainly in the sense that data powers, like ours, powers lots of industries, to, it, to and refinement of it makes it better, but then it, those industries take that and it fuels them to make more efficient or whatever machinery or what have you. There's some sort of analogy there with data. Our data is useful for agriculture, for energy, for finance, for insurance, for so many sectors. Um, it's powering lots of those sectors, and it's and 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 in that sense, it's it's an extremely um, uh, uh, a powerful uh, commodity to have, and we have a very proprietary data. You know, the only challenge with the Bloomberg data uh, analogy, and I'll come back to that now. So we are feeding our data feeds. So somebody, some ad company, subscribes to an area, or Google, as I said, picks off all the changes to the maps and that bit. You subscribe to an area, you get a data feed based on your interest. And then those data feeds go into people's workflows. And just like Bloomberg, those workflows, that, that, those data feeds enable them to make smarter decisions, whether agriculture, smart decisions, you know, counties doing the, the, that regulatory enforcement, Google making its maps up to date. It's enabling smarter decisions. So that's what Bloomberg does. It's just it's focused on the financial data sets, right, for the financial services. We are focused on earth data. It's a bit different in that it serves a lot of different vertical markets. And the other big difference is that it's based on a proprietary data set. You know, we have 200 satellites up there <laughs> collecting all this data. It's really, really hard <laughs> to put up 200 satellites. Um, and for anyone else to catch up, it would take many, many years. And even if they caught up, they couldn't go backwards in time. And a lot of our uh, users use the go back in time to see what happened over time to train their algorithms and so on. And obviously, you can't go back in time. I'm a physicist, and I'm pretty sure we haven't got time machines yet. And now, a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest-growing alternative investment solution providers, with a suite of institutional-caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF, with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities 
in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. So you, you talked a little bit about the different verticals that you have and anyone with imagination can think of different verticals and use cases of, of how businesses can use this. And so you've, you've found your product market fit. You have the product itself, um, the technology itself, I guess. How, how do you go about taking that from a cool technology, a cool product, into something that, that businesses are using in it. And especially with regards to you talk about it being a truly proprietary and unique data set. How do you go about pricing that? And how do you think about that from a, from a pricing theory perspective? It's a great question um, on the pricing, especially look, because, it's, because it's a new capability and no one's priced it yet. What we do is we price it very simply. It's based on area. And it's basically volume of data. So if you pick an area and how frequently you want to touch it, like every day, every week, every month, and that you want this many hectares or this many kilometers squared, and then we just charge it. And there's volumetric discount. Think about it simple as that. And by the way, we sell each data feed multiple times. So the marginal cost, by the way, for us of selling, you know, people think, oh, satellites, they must be really, really expensive, low margin. We've got very high margins as a business. And the reason is, we can sell each data feed multiple times and the incremental cost of selling the data feed a second time is just next enough. But anyway, the, you were asking about pricing and so basically it's on this volumetric pay. The good thing is no one else is producing this data set. So in principle, we could charge more or we could charge yes, less and sorry, and flood the market and get market uh, position and then change. You know, we have lots of options at our disposal on pricing. We are doing uh, what, you know, a lot of value-based pricing with our customers today. But, you know, it's based on a very simple model of area imagery uh, and, and, and how much you use. But we want to really much focus it on how it provides value to the users. And you, you, were, you were getting that with the first part of your question, which is how do we turn this from a cool tech into a business? So, you know, it's taken us a few years, mind, and, and you know, it took us about six or seven years to look, build and launch all these satellites. And then the last three years have been building that business. And, you know, it's not simple, right? And what does it mean? It means calibrating all the data sets and making it easy to pick them. It's making that Bloomberg tunnel. I don't mean a physical terminal. It's a web uh, site um, that, you know, is a GUI interface and classic APIs that you would use for any modern business to automate all of this in the back end. But like you can, uh, in the end, you can bespoke set up your data feeds, your area of interest, your analytics that you build on top of it and so on for your needs, right? Um, and so, a lot of what we have built building on top of this, you know, 1500 layers of imagery for every part of the Earth's surface is machine learning and, in, and added insights and simple ways of digesting and integrating that data into your workflow. Whether you're that ag company, you're that government, or you're that mapping company, or, or so on and so forth. So as this data gets integrated into a customer's workflow, could you describe more of how you guys generate revenue? I understand you have a subscription model. And could you also discuss some of the operating leverage as you guys scale? Yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 we are a subscription model over 90%. We just, so just last year, we did just over 100 million of revenue. And just over 90% of that was recurring revenue, mainly subscription-based business. So yes. People are subscribing to this much area over this much time. And sometimes it's like they that plus they can add on more stuff on top of that. 
a bit like maybe you do an AWS, you know, you, yeah. and, and you get your bulk discount because of your minimum commit. And then it's, it's, it's on top of that. The margins just get better with time because the more data we sell. So our margins um, last year, inclusive of the cost of the satellites, were 62% on the bulk of our revenue, the, the, um, the planet scope business, which is 73% of our revenue. So that including the cost of the satellites. So, you know, including amortization and depreciation of those assets. And that's a big deal, right? Because again, most people think of the satellites as being really expensive. Our capex this next year is just shy of 10%, uh, wow. which, you know, for a heavy satellite launching rockets business, you might go, well, that's that, that you wouldn't have expected that. And that's because we're selling. And, and so in the future, what are we aiming to do? We're going to leverage this data more and more. We're going to sell it to more clients. And every time we sell it, it's, you know, it's basically gravy every time, right? And we're going to sell it. Uh, we're going to add value-added services on top of the data to enable more clients to be able to use it. So um, at the present day, it's mostly folks that have geospatial expertise, you know, big ag companies, governments, and, and mapping companies like Google have geospatial experts. But we can't expect everyone. And a lot of other people would get value out of it in principle. So a lot of what we're doing next, firstly, is we're adding lots of, um, uh, of, of sales and marketing efforts because we can't deal with all the inbound requests for our data right now. <laughs> and so we need. But the second thing is building software to make it easier and easier to use. So you can imagine um, that we can make it simpler and then we can enable it to be useful to the hedge funds, to the insurance companies, to the energy companies, to the many other companies that can't use it because they don't have people with PhDs in, you know, in computer science to, or satellite imagery to digest it. And so we're making the tools easy. Let me give you an example of that. We have a, a machine learning model called train your own model. Basically, you can say, I'm interested in these kind of features, <laughs> and then it will go and find those features in the rest of the world for you, or you're in your area of interest. So you can imagine how powerful that is, so you can make it bespoke to the things that you're trying to find. We've already done that for classic objects that a lot of people want. We automatically find roads and buildings and ships and planes. But say you're interested in tennis courts, but we haven't got that yet. Then say you're interested in silo bags. Actually, we do have that one. But like, you know, say you're interested in a particular feature, we can help you to train that, and then you can run that model for yourself. And that's going to enable a lot more people. That's going to enable that hedge fund or that insurance company to do their job, whereas today they, they can't. And it's mainly the people with geospatial expertise that you can value out of their data. So over $100 million in revenue from over 600 customers. So I'm guessing average customer is a couple hundred thousand dollars in annual revenue. So you guys have developed the business, grown it to the point where you are now going public at a $2.25 billion enterprise value by merging through special purpose acquisition company, DMY Technology Group 4. Can you talk a bit how this deal came together? Was it inbound? Were you guys seeking to go public and go big time? Well, we did get a lot of inbound. To, you know, um, I think my CFO was batting off about 10 SPACs uh, <laughs> a day at one wow. point, peak load. No, I'm not sure about that, quite that rate, but it was pretty damn high. And, uh, but, but we wanted to go public when we were ready to go public. Right. And our board very clearly considered this, our management team, and our board has done these things before and we were like checking in and making sure that we're ready and it, it got to the point where it made sense and then we were assessing our options Niccolo de Massi had knocked on our door uh, over a year earlier than we consummated the the transaction 
and uh, we sent him away, to be honest. But but <laughs> he but he came back, and he was very keen on the data business, and we were very keen on him and his colleague uh, Harry uh, um, because they knew data companies, they knew um, about hardware companies through IonQ, data companies through Genius Sports. They really saw the big picture perspective. They saw Planet as the not just the satellite company, but the the data company and the software company, and it's all three, right? Uh, but, uh, but they saw the fact that it's a data business, right? And that that's the core. And they saw the value proposition to sustainability, and they saw, saw the, how this is going to have a lot of retail interest. And they were like, okay, this is a cool company, right? And so it was a good match both ways. We were ready, and, and, and I'm really excited about going public, actually. I, I think it's going to be right. Um, for, we're ready. There's right scale. We've scaled our business. We've retired the risk on our technology. The satellites are working. You know, the data processing are working. We've got lots to do, lots of growth. But this is the right time to go public, have more capital, to invest in sales and marketing, to invest in going up the software uh, stack, to add more value-added services so that we can help other companies. And frankly, also be more well-known. A lot of our customers, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people, when I meet them, that are potential customers, they've never heard of Planet. We have a lot of inbound, but like, still a lot of the world hasn't heard of Planet who could get value out of it. And of course, going public uh, enables you that. Uh, um, of course, at the same time, we did a pipe, and I'm very pleased that BlackRock is leading our pipe because, of course, they care a lot about ESG and that transition of the community uh, uh, to, 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 to measuring environmental goals. And uh, we have Mike, uh, uh, um, we have Google coming back in. We have uh, um, Mark Benioff investing in a big way. And he, he's basically like, he wants to be in everything to do with sustainability. He's investing in some really cool stuff. And he said to me, look, the, the, everyone I speak to in this sustainability space needs Planet's data or is using it already. Basically, our data is, as he puts it, all leads, all roads lead to Planet <laughs> when it comes to sustainability. They all either have or need our data to make that transition. So he thinks this is the bet of the century for, you know, sustainability. And of course, I happen to agree, but I'm just, um, you know, a bit self-serving to say it purely myself. But since he says it, I feel more inclined to, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure he's right. I mean, many investors will tell you that these days that ESG and sustainability are massive areas of growth and not only from a business perspective, but also a personal values perspective. So we touched on a lot, the founding of the company, the development, the business model, and now going public with the $200 million pipe financing and funding the growth of the business. One thing we didn't touch on is competition. Who are some of your competitors? How do you differentiate and what makes Planet better? Oh, thanks. Well, it's a tee up. I mean, I mean in <laughs> our case, there's not really much competition um, as, it, as it turns out, because we're really the first player to put up a fleet of satellites to do a daily scan of the Earth or anything like that. Um, uh, there are a couple of companies that are already have Earth imaging satellites. So it's not like we invented that concept. Um, uh, Max, uh, Airbus, and a couple of others, and a couple of other new starts trying to do that as well. Uh, but no one's got anything like the scale of satellites. So they've all got a few satellites, and they can only cover, say, 1% or 2% of the land mass of the Earth per day. Different applications sometimes, but in any case, for the kind of applications we're going after, like agriculture, they, if you only cover 1% or 2% of the world every day, and agriculture alone is 25%, or forestry is another 25%, or all the urban areas is, and, and, and suburban areas is 10%, you can't do those applications. You can't do maritime. You can't do a lot of applications if you're area coverage. So our area coverage is what enables us to 
do the applications that we're doing, and no one has anything like that. If they propose such a mission, if they had perfect funding and a perfect team that was already bonded and already knew how to build lots of satellites, which is not many teams, it, maybe they could get it done. They could catch you know, up to where we are today in five or seven years. And um, so we have a fairly good margin from which to exploit this data, get it out there, test the market, grow the market, uh, whilst uh, if anyone wants to copy us. And, you know, and then, of course, it's our prerogative to keep on innovating on the technology to have the best data and the best platform that people want to use that delight our customers, that add value to them and, and, and ultimately help the planet. So that's our job to continue to push as hard as we can. Sounds like you're well on your way. So, Will, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. One last question. I'm going to throw out a fun one for there since you are the resident space expert. What are your thoughts on extraterrestrial life, UFOs, UAPs? Do you believe in any of it? <laughs> okay. So when I was at NASA, one of my friends was on the hot, de- on, on the hot phone that got all the UFO calls. And, um, <laughs> 96% of them were Venus, if I remember him oh, telling okay. me why. I mean, so basically, almost all of them are just misunderstandings of basic astro- astronomical objects, of course. Right. No, I, I, I don't think it's very likely that UFOs have visited the planet, but I think it's very likely that there's life in the universe. Um, and in fact, I'll make a prediction for you. I, uh, I would predict we will find life off Earth within 10 years. Oh, wow. That's quite the prediction. So there you have it, folks. Will from Planet Labs calling for uh, perhaps some alien sightings over the next decade, but we shall see what investors should know. DMYQ is the ticker symbol for DMY Technology Group 4, the SPAC that is merging with Planet. The deal should close, I believe, later this year. So we're looking forward to that. And once it is closed, what will be the ticker symbol? Is it PL? PL. Yeah, that's right. DMYQ is the ticker symbol of the uh, SPAC vehicle and PL will be our sticker symbol on the New York Stock Exchange. And I think people are going to love this, right? Um, you know, they're going to see the data technology, the, the data and its relevance to a lot of different vertical markets. They're going to see those margins. They're going to see the relevance to sustainable economy. And it's just fun as well, right? I mean, we're taking pictures of the whole earth every day. Uh, data is often, by the way, in the press because we're exposing things going on around the planet, like just last week it was in the New York Times with, with pictures and, that had found a bunch of nuclear weapon silos in mm. China that no one had discovered. And we discover ecological things like, you know, things in the, in the forest, in the Amazon, you name it, we're just discovering stuff. So it's just a fun story to follow and the pictures are beautiful. So uh, there's, there's lots of side of it, but I, I, I'm confident that, um, about our prospects and, and excited about it. Uh, so bring it on. Sounds great. As are we. So we'll wish you the best of luck as you pursue your going public journey with Planet. And we'll be watching and uh, wishing you the best. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot, Julian and Michael. All right. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. 
The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.